0: As I mentioned at the beginning of service, it's Pentecost Sunday, where the church around the world celebrates the fact that, as Jesus promised, when he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit would come and it would transform the church. It would constitute us into the new people of God. It propelled that early church in Acts 2 um, to speak in new languages so that they could reach out across what was known of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Persian Empire, into the lands nearby so they could hear the gospel in their own language. And I think, in part, when we gather and greet one another, what we're affirming, right, is regardless of the ways that we're different, regardless of the ethnic differences and the geographic differences and the social differences, we are bound together in a new community by the Holy Spirit, and that we belong to one another and to the worldwide church in a new way that resonates with us and reminds us we are not alone. And if you think about the globe, we're kind of coming at the tail end of Sabbath Sunday, right? Because while we were still sleeping, the Pacific Islands woke up and began to worship, and Australia joined in probably around the time we were in deep sleep, right? Asia began to worship, and as we were beginning our day, Europe and Latin America was finishing their experience of worship. So we're picking up the baton. And we're passing along toward the Midwest where churches are just beginning to gather now. And in about five or six hours, Hawaii will kind of finish this global tidal wave of praise that begins to crest over the world. And so we celebrate uh, Pentecost as a reminder of the global nature of the church, of the way the Holy Spirit is at work. And as they reminded us at the beginning, Pentecost was a harvest festival for the early church. It was a reminder both of the harvest um, that was, or I guess it was a planting festival, given that was spring. A planting festival, um, I'm losing track of what, it was an agricultural festival. Winter wheat, thank you. I was like, it's harvest, right? Yeah, winter wheat. Um, and so I want to pause at the idea of harvest for a moment. Uh, I am so thankful that you are blessing, Dick, to take a sabbatical. This is not a paid announcement, but as a person who visits... Um, I think when churches choose to care about the quality of the soul of their pastor, it pays off in great pastoral ministry in the years to come. That there is something important about laying fallow, laying aside pastoral responsibilities so that your primary responsibility in that next season is to pay attention to what God is doing, to be very present to what is going on in your life. And I think out of that, even though it's a sacrifice for the congregation— Um, It actually pays benefits in the future. And I love being at churches which recognize that and affirm that. And I think, in part, um, it's because you're a generous people. And I'm grateful that you're choosing to invest uh, this summer in this way. I think it will be a blessing to the church in the future. And it certainly will be a blessing uh, to Dick and his family. And it's your generosity. Um, I should say, since, uh, as they mentioned, my family is moving, that I just want to take a moment at the beginning of the sermon to thank you all for the gracious hospitality and kindness and generosity that you've shown me and my family. My wife and kids were thinking about coming this week, uh, and Jen said, you know, this is probably your last week, here. do you want us to come? And I said, you know, there's so many other transitions that are going to occur over the next three or four months for our kids that a little bit of routine would probably be better for them than a chance to say goodbye. And so we're trying to keep routine going since movers come June 6th. We're moving to New Jersey to stay with my in-laws to finish off school, which means an hour, 15-minute commute each way to get to school for the next three weeks. And then we're headed off to Asia for two weeks with my in-laws, and then we move into our house, and then we prepare for school three weeks later. And I said, with that much chaos, maybe just a little consistency for the kids would be good. Um, I think about your generosity because, in part, as far as I can tell, this is my 11th year Coming to CBC, I found actually sermon notes from 2010, and I know those weren't the first. And given that you all, for whatever reason, continue to invite me, that's probably 60 or 70, maybe 75, 80 times that I've been here at the congregation. And your love and care for me, um, the smiles on your faces and the words of encouragement and affirmation have been things I've uh, held deeply in my heart. Um, I woke up this morning, and the kids had managed to come into our bed. I was holding both of them, I started getting teary, thinking about how deeply I love you all, how excited I am for who you are becoming, uh, because I've had 11 years of watching you grow and flourish. Um, I still am in touch with Dave Dunkerton, who prays for me regularly, and um, I remember I started coming toward the end of David's tenure as pastor here, and so I just wanted to say thank you to all of you and happy to talk to you more uh, at the 11 o'clock hour, but you've changed me. I've preached more here than almost any other place in the world as far as I can tell. And it's your generosity as a congregation to welcome me and Dick's incredible gener- uh, generosity to continue to welcome me week after week. A lot of pastors jealously guard pl- uh, pulpit time and um, fewer are still are willing to let people come that frequently And Dick has been incredibly generous in saying, come, share, let me uh, participate in what we're already doing in joining the sermon series. And then as you, Greg, discern what God might be doing, feel free to speak as God leads. And that kind of generosity and trust in the Holy Spirit is remarkable. And when he assigned me the text that we have today, I thought it seemed very fitting that we're looking at this text on Pentecost Sunday. Um, How does God begin a new thing? How does God do new things and propel his people into worship? I think you get three examples in this text. It falls right after the stories of Peter um, being sent to Cornelius. And really the first non-Jewish person coming to faith in a significant way. And the church wrestling with what that would mean. And um, Peter explains his action to the church. They affirm it. And then Luke says, to give you an example of what that looks like, look what happened at Antioch which is how this story picks up. And it now says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen, who was a Hellenistic Jew, assigned to wait tables and because of his preaching was the first martyr, because the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, which would be modern-day Lebanon-ish, Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, Antioch, which would be in uh, lower Turkey, spreading the word only among the Jews. Um, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them about the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. What strikes me first about um, how God begins a new thing is it's striking to me the people doing the witnessing were the people experiencing the persecution. Right? Right? Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out began to sprout, and they began to speak to the Jews. And it's startling to me because I think for most of us, when we experience persecution, when we experience trouble, when we experience opposition, the natural human tendency is to withdraw, to protect ourselves, Right? We, we, bear, we, um, we have all sorts of metaphors. We um, raise the barricades, we circle the wagons, right? You can come up with metaphor after metaphor. When we're attacked, we immediately become defensive. And you see that in our culture, right? So much of what pervades American culture right now is a culture of fear, Every analysis as I've read of the last election, of current politics, is how different communities in the United States respond to fear. And by and large, what we do is we draw in, we draw close, and we withdraw. And what strikes me about the early churches, when they experienced persecution, when people challenged their faith, when they were um, at risk physically and financially, socially and economically, their response, though they scattered, was not to withdraw into small Christian enclaves, disengaged from the culture around them but when these people were scattered by the persecution that broke out when one of their leaders was killed stoned to death in front of them they traveled far and they spread the word wherever they went what would it take for us to actually experience persecution social disapproval potentially outright uh, oppression, and respond not by being angry and not by being fearful and not by being defensive, but instead by choosing to reach out even in that moment. How do you know the Holy Spirit is at work? How do you know that we have confidence in who God is as the sovereign Lord of the universe and the hope of the world? It's because when we experience that kind of difficulty, that kind of opposition, We choose instead to respond by looking for opportunities to proclaim that Jesus Christ alone is the one who reigns and rules. That God himself is in charge and that our security doesn't come from social approval or legal protection, but comes in the name of the Lord. What happens if we saw opposition and potential persecution as a God-given opportunity to grow in confidence and boldness and witness? In part, I see this all the time. One of my roles in intervarsity is to work on what we call campus access issues. Those are places where universities have told us, because you require your leaders to be Christians, we will not allow you to be a recognized student group on campus. And while that doesn't seem to be a big thing, if you're not a recognized student group, you can't reserve rooms, for free or at a discounted rate. You aren't allowed to publicize your existence on campus. Uh, many uh, faculty and other clubs will not work with you. And for students, it becomes quite costly. When we were de-recognized um, several years ago at the California State System, there was one university that was going to charge one of our larger fellowships something about $1,000 a week in order to have their weekly worship sessions. Right, $30,000 is a lot for a group of about 100 students to raise over the course of a week just to be able to worship and mobilize for witness together. In almost every one of those circumstances, particularly when it's been a contentious departure from campus, um, the university has come to our students and said, look, if you would just let go of your affiliation with InterVarsity and stop requiring your student leaders to affirm that they're Christians, you will have no problems. I mean, what will it cost you? Do you really think non-Christians would join your group anyways? Why can't you just not have open leadership? Why do you need to have those leadership requirements? And we've tried to point out, in fact, non-Christians often do join our groups and they are felt, feel so loved and cared for that, in fact, they often run for office and that, in fact, we, often, we uh, often have to tell students, you know, you aren't yet a Christian. Maybe you shouldn't be leading the Christian fellowship, but would you like an opportunity to think about becoming a Christian today, could we talk about that instead? Um, just recently, I we disaffiliated a chapter because the faculty advisor who was on campus um, had become pretty influential with the students, and we didn't have a staff worker there. And, um, the faculty advisor declared that they weren't Trinitarian at all; they didn't believe in um, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were actually Unitarian, and convinced the student leaders to become Unitarians with her. And we said we can't continue to allow we can't allow you to continue to using the university name. We believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We had to withdraw recognition there. What strikes me, though, in every case where it's been contentious, and often there are articles and angry letters to the newspaper on campus, administrators have said terrible things, is that when we have asked the students, would you like to disaffiliate? You could be free of the negative publicity. You'd have full access to the campus. It'd be free again. People would love you. What are you going to do? uniformly in every case, almost overwhelmingly unanimously, the chapters have stood up and said, we are not giving up our convictions about what it means to be a Christian organization. In fact, I was talking to one student in California um, just a few years ago, and they said, you know, what I've learned most about through this Campus Access Challenge has been there's an incredibly important deposit of faith that we've been given generation after generation from the earliest apostles that I'm responsible for. If if I give up what we believe in order to have free and easy access to campus so that people aren't angry with us, I've betrayed generations of Christians who've come before me, and I've betrayed the Christians who come after me, because then this fellowship will be rooted in nothing and will stand for nothing. What I've learned, um, this one student said through this campus access challenge, was um, holding clear to my faith will cost me. And I'm glad I'm learning this lesson now because I expect the challenges will be far greater and far harder after I graduate from college. Because I'm going to have to confront this when I'm at my job and decide, will I act ethically or not? If the government ever decides to change its posture toward Christians and the favorable ways that we're treated, I will need to decide, what will I do and will I choose a path of ease or will I choose a path of discipleship? If I ever choose to follow Jesus overseas, I'll have to make decisions about how much I'm willing to risk and what I'm willing to um, lose in order to follow Jesus if he calls me to a place difficult. And in a small way, I'm making a decision now to live faithfully so that I'm prepared for whatever may come. And I love the way that the early disciples, when experiencing persecution and oppression, responded not with anger, not with defensiveness, Not with fear or not um, frustration. Instead, wherever they went, they began to declare the word. Where's the opportunity for us here in northern Westchester County to choose to respond with courage and with joy, with faith and with hope, even when you get the slightly disapproving look? Somehow people think you might be religious. Or a little bit of social sanction, because rather than doing the things that they hope you will do on a Sunday, you end up showing up here regularly. Or that you maybe, what feels like socially inappropriately, talk about how prayer and scripture continue to shape your life. How does God begin a new thing? What strikes me is that initially, when they began to proclaim the word, they began to proclaim the word only to the Jews. Because right these were Jewish Christians, leaving Jerusalem under persecution from both Um, from the Jews in Jerusalem being sent out. And so they reached out to the people who were most obviously in front of them, fellow Jews, and they did what Paul did and Peter did often in the beginning of their preaching. They went to other Jews and began to declare through the scriptures who Jesus was and why he was the answer to the promises that had been made in the Old Testament. But then suddenly, there's this change. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and Cyrene would be kind of North Africa at this point, um, went to Antioch, and began to speak to the Greeks also. Now, it's a little unclear whether these were um, Greek Greeks or kind of um, Greek folk who'd become God-fearers, people who'd become attached to the synagogue, but it's clear these are not Jews, right? Somehow, these men got to Antioch and said, you know, normally we'd speak to the Jews, but there are all these other people here. They literally began to see a new mission field right in front of them. Um, why did they start choosing to speak to the Greeks? I think in part, men from Cyprus and Cyrene were already in the Greek-speaking world. They were socializing with Greek-speaking people, both Jews and Gentiles. They had natural networks and connections that allowed them to do that. And they're reaching out. And if they're reaching out to God-fearers, right, greek folk who were intrigued by the God of the Old Testament and who might have begun to engage with local synagogues. What's striking to me is that the um, Greek-speaking God-fearers were part of that larger community that actually initiated the persecution um, around um, uh, Stephen's death, right? It was um, the Hellenist, it was the um, Greek-speaking Jews as part of uh, Stephen's community that initiated And so that's probably some of that same community that they're choosing to reach out to. Um, And what would it be like, not just to respond to persecution by proclaiming the faith, but choosing to reach out to some of the very cultural communities that initiated the persecution of you? Think about it, uh, uh, how difficult that might be that the people who actually did you harm are the people that you think you're already in relationship with me is God calling me to reach out to you one of the best examples um, I've ever heard of this occurred in South Africa and was reported by the Canadian Mennonite I suspect I've shared this story here before Um, but as you know uh, as apartheid ended the South Africans quite wisely realized that you couldn't cover over the atrocities that occurred uh, during the reign of apartheid, um, nor could you just declare general amnesty, that they needed something deeper and more profound, and I think in part it was um, some of the deeply Christian roots of the protest movement that compelled them to say what we need is a truth and reconciliation commission, that actual forgiveness and reconciliation occurs not when we excuse bad behavior, because excuse just assumes you had no choice and had no ability um, to stop it, right? If I, if you say, I'm very sorry for it, you say, oh, no, no, um, it's not a problem, um, that's not helpful. And if you said, well, I didn't mean to do it, I was forced to do it by circumstances, you're not really taking responsibility, but they chose instead to pursue a truth and reconciliation commission where if the people who committed the atrocities confessed fully what they had done, they would be given amnesty, that truth-telling was the way, they felt, to bring actual justice and actual restoration. And at one hearing... Um, a policeman whose last name was Vandenbroek recounted an incident where he and other officers had shot an 8 year old boy and then burned the body so that there would be no evidence. Um, they basically turned it on a fire like a piece of barbecue meat in order to joy- destroy the evidence to ensure that it had been fully destroyed. And Then eight years later, Vandenbroek returned to that same house and seized the boy's father, and the wife was forced to watch as policemen policeman burned her, body, burned her husband on a woodpile and poured gasoline on his body and ignited it, right? These were the atrocities that would occur often in the townships. Um, and so he named what he did at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In the courtroom, um, the story says, grew quite quiet when the elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond because victim impact statements were part of what reconciliation means. What impact did this evil have on you, right? That's often true reconciliation, as we all know. It's not just me saying, I'm sorry, but the other person acknowledging, that was very hurtful. That was destructive. That was evil, whatever. And the old woman went up, and the court asked her, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbroek? And her response, I thought, was telling and quite powerful. She said, I want Mr. Vanderbroek to go with me to the place where they burned where he burned my husband's body and gather up the dust with me so that I can try to give him a decent burial. And his head dropped, and the policeman nodded agreement. Then she added a further request. She said, Mr. Vanderbrook took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he's forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like to embrace him so that he knows that my forgiveness is real. Um, Evidently in that courtroom, somebody began singing spontaneously Amazing Grace as she got up and began to walk to Mr. Vanderbrook, who actually knew none of what was happening then, because he had just passed out. Astounded and amazed by the power of what it looks like when somebody who I suspect had deeply Christian values and a deep commitment to what the radical grace of Jesus Christ looked like chose not just to express pain and anger, which would have been understandable, but to instead to reach out to the very people who had persecuted her. How do we do that? I want to suggest as a church that that's why it's important to build habits of behavior now so that we reflexively spontaneously, naturally begin to respond with grace when we're pressed and don't have the capacity to do it any other way. That we all know from those of us who are raising children, part of the reason you teach them to say thank you and are obnoxious, did you say thank you, did you th- say thank you, It's so that when you are no longer there, they say thank you without you being present. <laughs> Much to our children's distress, we often think they won't do it when we're not there, but my... Nine-year-old and seven-year-old assure me they understand the lesson and are doing it without us. They just won't do it when we're there. (laughs) Um, I remember reading a story from Kathleen Norris, and I believe it was her book, Dakota, where she said she was talking to an old woman who lived on the Dakota Plains who had terminal cancer. And the old woman said, my one hope is that I will die before the pain turns me into an old, well, she used a different word, but cranky woman. She said, that's my one hope at this point. And what um, Kathleen Norris said is it was fascinating to watch her and another woman in the same community who was also um, struggling with terminal cancer. She said, obviously the woman who was concerned that she would turn into an um, old cranky woman, um, as deep as the pain got, continued to respond with ever-increasing joy, faith, peace, and sweetness. And the other woman, she said, um, who had seemed so prim and proper, just went crazy. Right? everything that she'd ever wanted to do, ruining her marriage and her relationship, she decided to, but she had nothing left. And I often think of that story because I think, what will it take for me to choose the patterns of behavior now so that when my capacities drop over time, I've been with you all a long time, I've had to move to the larger print Bible <laughs> um, since I've been preaching here, um, that I go out in a way that most reflects Jesus' character rather than my own bad behavior and reflexive actions. I think of a woman I know um, whose memory started to go, particularly her short-term memory, and she had had dinner with um, the neighbors the night before, and so the two children, who I believe were about 11 and 13, came with a bouquet of flowers to say thank you for having them over for dinner the night before. And her response, right, as dementia and her memory began to go, was this, (gasps) They said, you know, they came, thank you for dinner last night. Do you remember that we were there? They knew her memory problems. And she said, I have no recollection. I'm sure we had a good time. Tell me about it. (laughs) I want to go out like that, right? If my memory were to leave, I want to go out expectant that God was good, anticipating his joy, not being frustrated that I could not remember or embarrassed or sad, but so reflexively and habitually responding to God with joy and anticipation that when I have nothing left, I'll respond. With joy, I suspect those of you who go regularly to the nursing home see that with some of the patients there, that there's certain patients who everything is lost until you sing a hymn that they've sung a hundred times as a child, and suddenly the words come ambling back. Or that patient who can remember nothing, but as soon as you start the Lord's Prayer, it start, the words come naturally out of their mouth, because it's ingrained at a level far deeper. Than cognition. It's why I pray or I try to pray the Lord's Prayer multiple times a day because I'm hoping that as I age and as things fall apart and fall out of my mind, if all I have in the end is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, it will be enough to take me to the end. How will we build in those habits of behavior that become responsive? And you all know, right? We all know the people who age well and who age with increasing joy and peace. Even at times, they might get cranky, but the response and reflexive nature is um, they're a joy to be with. And I've watched some of my colleagues who've aged, and I just think, you've gotten crankier. <laughs> and you're leaving, um, and you're now departing university, varsity and we're more relieved than grieved. <laughs> I don't want to go that way. I suspect we don't want to go that way. And what strikes me is at a moment when they experienced persecution, these believers responded with grace and with hope. Um, What strikes me about them is the Holy Spirit gave them new eyes, right? Um, Even if these were just plain Greeks, even if they weren't God-fearers, then um, these were a community that that did not naturally come to mind for the early church. Because it says very clearly um, they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among the Jews, But somehow these Hellenistic Christians from Crete and Cyrene said, you know, we're reaching the Jews. But there are these other Greek speakers who are not Jews and they need the gospel too. How did the Holy Spirit open their eyes to see the community right next to them that they had previously ignored and assumed were closed? When suddenly and how suddenly the Holy Spirit dropped into their lives, where they're like, I know who my mission field is. Oh my gosh, there are all these other people here. And the Lord desires them to be well, right? That suddenly they began to read the Old Testament. They said, Abraham was promised to be a blessing to all nations through his descendants in Genesis 12 and 15. And they began to read the Psalms and they realized all nations were called to praise the Lord God Almighty. And they read the promises in Isaiah and Ezekiel that one day every nation would be readopted by God as his people adopted into Israel. Um, Even those nations that most opposed them. And suddenly they saw "Ah, it's these people too adjacent to the people who we normally would reach who do you not expect to be in your mission field? Who through familiarity or just presumption do we assume is closed to the gospel in our daily lives but are right next to us all the time that we interact with on a daily basis? It occurs to me at one level what presumption there must be in my own heart to decide for somebody else that they are closed to the gospel. As if, by my assessment, I believe they are beyond the Holy Spirit's reach and concern. It occurs to me that I often want to choose the people I would like to reach out to, and I'm not paying attention to the people that God has put right next to me, that I interact with on a regular basis. How do we pray that we begin to see with God's own eyes the opportunities to name the name of Jesus? Who seems far away to you? I think about a colleague of mine, Brian, um, who used to work at the University at Buffalo. And for years, Brian was trying to do evangelism on campus and couldn't find um, an interested group of students. And um, one day he said, well, I need to find spiritually open people. Where can I find them? And the group that he decided to reach out to was the pagan student group on campus. Because he said, they're at least interested in spiritual things, unlike many of the other students I seem to be running into. And so... um, At the normal Pagan Student Association meeting, um, right, these are self-identifying witches and uh, polytheists and pagans. Um, They would each take uh, a week and teach something about paganism. And one day the, the president said to Brian, who'd been attending for several weeks, hey, Brian, you've been attending a while now. What do you want to teach about? And Brian said, well, you guys know I'm a Christian, right? So I don't know really much about paganism at all. And the president said, well, you know about Jesus, don't you? Brian said, uh, yes. And the president said, well, hey, you can teach us about Jesus. October 11th is going to be Jesus Day. (laughs) And Brian said, okay. (laughs) And so on Jesus Day, um, Brian said, you know, the best thing I could do is not do an apologetics lecture or try to convince you why paganism is wrong. I'd like to show you about Jesus. And so he taught them a Bible study. Um, He taught them from Luke 15 about a woman who had 10 coins and lost one and searched everywhere until she found the one coin that was lost, right? Um, she taught about, he taught about a shepherd who had 100 sheep, but one was missing, and he went in search of that one sheep. He taught about a father who had two sons, both of whom seemed very lost, one who went far off and one who was very close, but neither of whom knew him very well, and who left his house every time to go search for them. And then he said, do you believe that God loves you like that? And one student responded with tears in her eyes. She shared that um, her teenage sister's best friend had recently died of cancer. And she wondered where this loving God might be. And it began to resonate with her. Another student said, I would give anything to know that there was a God who would love me like that, who would search me out no matter how far I went. Who might be the furthest group you could imagine from the gospel? Wouldn't it potentially be the Pagan Student Association on a hedonistic college campus and yet right there as Brian chose to see who was adjacent to his world with new eyes he suddenly found a place where the gospel was welcome we are here in Upper Westchester are the communities that we don't see because we assume that they're already closed and how might God God be asking us to see with new eyes let me end with this how does God begin a new thing? I think, in part, the the, the the fear of new things, right? The fear of doing something new is what happens if we do it wrong? What happens if we start something wrong? And I love how the early church responded to this new thing that was happening. They assessed and affirmed what they could. So the early church sends Barnabas out, and... Um, to assess what's going on, right? News of this had reached the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of the people were brought to the Lord. I'm going to go a little further than our initial reading. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Why is Barnabas sent? What an odd choice. right? He's not one of the apostles, um, but he is a leader at the church, and I think there was something really canny and wise to the early churches. They tried to assess and affirm this new thing that might be the ways that we as a church assess how God might be doing, doing new things, which often scares us. They send Barnabas, I suspect he's pretty sympathetic to what might be going on, because this ministry began when men of Cyprus and Cyrene started reaching out to the Greeks, and Barnabas happens to be a Jewish Christian from Cyprus. He probably knows the people who started this work. Is somewhat sympathetic to what it would be like to be a Jew in predominantly Grecian culture. Um, He's sympathetic and not suspicious as a beginning. He's pretty humble, isn't Barnabas, because he went there, saw God was at work, and his first response wasn't, I'm going to consolidate this work. I'm an excellent teacher. His first response was, I'm going to encourage you, but you know what? You need more than I can give you. Let me bring Saul to you. There's something about a man or a woman who can walk into a place where there's clear need and where you could clearly take leadership and have the humility to say, I'm not enough for you. You need someone better. Let me bring them to you and then let them take over and I'll help them. Right? Barnabas is sympathetic, he's humble, he's full of the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of truth. Described in the same language um, that Stephen was described and so many other people in the book of Acts. Um, he's discerning and he's full of faith. And I think it's that word, full of faith, that's really critical here. He trusts what God is doing. He's assessed it. He's looked at it. He's come at it, not suspiciously, but sympathetically. And then he trusts that God is doing. And what strikes me about all of these behaviors, um, choosing to respond to persecution with boldness and witness, choosing to reach out to those who might hurt you and to look for the adjacent community that you have not yet reached, choosing to affirm something new and a bit scary, ultimately rests on that, right? It's a posture of trust. Do we believe God is sovereign? Do we believe that he's in control? Have we experienced his faithfulness so frequently and so consistently that even when we're afraid, even when we might be in pain, We're able to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And I will choose to respond like Jesus calls us to respond. Well, what's the response then of the people here? What strikes me is if you've been listening to the cadences of this language, um, how similar they are to the description of the early church in Acts 2. Right? They're gathering around the apostolic teaching. They're growing in faith. More and more people are coming to faith. And in fact, in verses 23, 27 through 30, it describes they heard about a famine that was occurring in Jerusalem and they began to give out of their own resources at Antioch as a very young Christian community to serve uh, Christians who are deeper in need. Right? Uh, they gave to everyone who had need. Acts 2, uh, 42 through 44 reminds us. Um, Luke seems to be saying, Antioch's experienced the exact same thing. Twenty plus years later that um, or thirty plus years later, almost twenty plus years ten plus years later, that um, the early church experienced in Acts two, the, the church is growing, it's reaching new communities. So perhaps as we think about Pentecost, part of the joy of this passage, of course, is that this is the fulfillment of Pentecost at the first stage. The gospel has not gone out to the Hebraic Jews and to the Grecian-speaking Jews, it's now beginning to go out to the Greeks and to preparing the gospel, right? This is about how Paul's ministry is about to launch in the book of Acts to reach Samaria um, and the very ends of the earth. We're the descendants of that outreach. I don't know if any of you are actually ethnically Greek, but the choice of that early church in Antioch to reach out beyond the old Jewish ethnic groups allowed the vast majority of us, I suspect, in this room to become followers of Jesus now. And so, perhaps with Barnabas, let me say to you, as somebody who loves you, uh, has spent a fair amount of time with you, and will carry you, as my family heads off to Chicago, um, Barnabas' words to that early church were this. um, Remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. Follow him wherever he leads, and then experience his blessing as he continues to conform you into the image of Jesus and into a community that reflects what it means to be followers of Christ here in this particular location that you are. You are a blessing to um, northern Westchester County. And I look forward to hearing over the next couple of years or the next couple decades how God uses you, both in the present and in the future. Let me pray for us. Father, give us eyes to see the people that you've placed right in front of us. Give us hearts which do not prejudge their openness to the gospel, but instead are open to your leading guidance. Uh, Lead us to the people uh, who need uh, us to be a witness in their life, and then lead us to the people that we need to grow in faith and maturity, so that you would be glorified, so the church would be strengthened, and the world would be changed and conformed in your likeness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.